But, you know, before we get home today, the house might have burnt down. <laughs> uh, it could be that before we go to sell the house, the bottom drops out of the market and our house is worthless. could be that we lose our jobs and the bank forecloses on our house and we get nothing out of it. I think we often fall into the uh, trap of thinking that we are in control of our lives and that we know what we're doing and we're going to benefit from it. We like to think that if things are starting to go astray, look, if I just knuckle down, if I just try a bit harder, think more positively, things will get back on track. Or, or we might implicitly, the world will explicitly tell your kids uh, that, that they can be anything they want to be. You're in control of your life. You can do whatever you want to do. But it's a lie. It's a, it's a deception. And if you believe this, and I've just told you that, I'm sorry, but needed to let you know. We are not in control of our own destinies. Now, for sure, we live in an unprecedented age of freedom, COVID restrictions exempted, uh, but we have access to so much, unprecedented choice, unprecedented prosperity and wealth, unprecedented health care and unprecedented technological assistance. But don't be fooled into thinking that you're in control of things or that you know better than God. Don't be fooled into thinking that somehow we should know better than God in how we are to structure and live our lives. We're corrupted by sin. How, how are we going to know better than the good God of the universe who knows the end from the beginning? It's arrogance. It's out, out, absolutely outlandish that we would try and improve on God's design for the good life. Or, or really outlandish to think that we have as much control as God. Sure, we can influence some of the outcomes in life. God has made us moral agents who live and work in his creation. And we rely on the order of his creation. The things happen in accordance with God's kind of design. For instance, um, you know, a farmer plants his seed and expects that the seed will sprout. But as an example of our lack of control, the farmer can't control when the rain comes. Or even if he irrigation, that he can pump the water out of the river, he can't control the flows coming from upstream. He can't control whether or not the government is going to revoke his water license next week. Or as an example of trying to improve on God's design, we think we know better than what God has said. It's like a farmer who leaves all of his seed in the silo and says, look, I know that seed grows, but I want it to grow in the silo because, look, I can't be bothered getting out there with the and, and putting the seed in the ground and spending all those hours on the tractor. And Look, it just doesn't suit my way of life. It just doesn't work for me. Now, fair warning, as you may have already picked up on, I might be a little bit biting this morning. I might feel like I'm being a little bit rough with your soul. But there's a good reason for it. Firstly, because this is a bit of how the passage is. It has a bit of this tone, and I think it's good when we're talking about these passages to adopt that tone to kind of drive home how, how it feels. But secondly, I might be a bit incisive because... 
this text fights against the prevailing message of the world. Many of us need to wake up to the absolute pile of rubbish that the world wants us to believe. And thirdly, it's because I'm skipping town shortly and I don't have to deal with the <laughs> Not really, but I'm not going to be here much longer. I will not be here pastoring among you much longer and I wanted to make this message count, even if, even if it's a little bit hard-edged. It might be a hard sermon for some. God's word cuts us. It might cut straight to your heart, either because you're being foolish and you need to hear the message of this passage, or maybe it might cut to your heart because it highlights something that you desire, that you long for, that you don't have. Either way, it reveals what's going on in our hearts, and sometimes it might be uncomfortable. And I might fire out a few barbs, but I'm sure you will know if I'm firing out those barbs at you or whether they're meant for somebody else. So please don't take offense. We're coming to God whose word he uses us to chastise. Sometimes he leads us through heartache, but he's always good, loving, and merciful. And so although we might start a little bit abrasively, I hope we can end in joy and hope. As we come to this text to submit ourselves to see what God has to say, we're not here prepared to defend our way of life. We're not here to find loopholes in what God has said. We're not looking for mistakes that I might make in my presentation that would give you an excuse to kind of forget the whole thing. We're coming to hear what God has to say. So I'm going to use a little section of Psalm 119 to pray as we come to God's Word. Please deal bountifully with your serpents, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes, that we may behold the wondrous things out of your law. We are sojourners on the earth. Hide not your commandments from us. Our soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from us scorn as we try to keep your testimonies. Even though your enemies sit plotting against us, your servants will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are our delight. They are our counsellors. Amen. We're going to look at this psalm. In, it's a short psalm. So we're only going to look at it in two sections, verses 1 to 2 and 3 to 5. But we will see that while on the surface these two sections kind of look independent... They're actually connected. We'll see that in due time. But the first section, we see the vanity of building and protection. The vanity of building and protection. And as you look into the psalm, you notice a few things straight away. It's called, a, it's part of the collection of psalms called the Songs of Ascents, and it belonged to Solomon. Now, there's not much to say on this, but it hints both at the origin of the song and its use. Song of Ascents of Solomon. And it's been suggested that these psalms were sung as people would travel to Jerusalem to worship God, to meet Him on the Temple Mount as they were ascending the mountain, as they were going up to Jerusalem and then up higher to the Temple Mount. They could sing these psalms to remind themselves of God and what He requires of us. It's as good a guess as any as what Song of Ascents mean. But regardless of whether or not that's how they were used, 
they were used as worship songs by the people of God. And we see that it is of Solomon. That means it belongs to Solomon. So either Solomon wrote it or somebody wrote it for Solomon. Maybe David, his father, wrote it for him. But as we go through the psalm, you kind of get this distinctive kind of wisdom feel. You wouldn't be surprised if you found this psalm in the middle of Proverbs because of its style. So it seems to be written by Solomon. So what's God's wisdom to us through these words? Let's have a look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So what are we getting here? We're getting metaphors of life, building, guarding, building houses, protecting cities. And these are things that we do now. Uh, we don't usually think of watchmen uh, guarding our city, but we do think of policemen who will guard internally and a defence force which will guard externally. And we build houses. We, we, we lay foundations and we pay builders or, or we might work as a chippy. We build houses. These are everyday things, good things that we do. But what's said about these two things? Unless the Lord does it, it's useless. It's vanity, it's futile. Unless the Lord builds a house, it's a waste of time. It comes to nothing. All that money and labor and effort, it's a big old waste of time unless God is in it. All that effort that the watchman puts in to staying awake all night, keeping a lookout for sneak attacks from the enemy, trying to be prepared to repel at any moment or raise the alarm, it's all vanity unless God is there watching too. So it's not saying that building a house or guarding a city are not good things to do, but when these things are apart from God, when they're independent of God, they're empty, useless activities. They all amounts to nothing. But then it means the implication is the opposite is also true, that if God is in it, then it is valuable. It's not a waste of time. When God is working alongside the home builder, It's not a waste of time. It will be established. It will stand. It will be a refuge. When God is watching over a city, the watchman has backup. God is there protecting the city. His labor to stay awake those wee hours in the morning is valuable and useful. God has set us to work and work is good for us. Humanity was put here on the earth with guardianship over the earth to use it to be fruitful and multiply. But our work has been corrupted It's tainted by a broken creation that often makes our work futile, like planting seeds that get no rain. So although the work in this psalm is good, building and protecting work, it's futile without doing it on God's terms, without God working with us and for us. So I suppose bringing that home a little bit, What are you scurrying about building or protecting without regard for God? Are you out there trying to build the Tower of Babel to depose God? Or perhaps even a bit more literally, are you fixated on building a house, having a nice house in a good location? Most of us have 
have that desire. It's an Australian idol. But it can be done without regard to God's call on our life. Or maybe you're thinking, well, if I have enough savings in my bank account and my house paid off, I'm protected. I don't need to worry about the future. Now, in case you're tempted at this point to go, Samuel, you're, being, you're over-applying the text. It's really just about chippies and policemen. We don't need to worry about it. The next verse drives it home. It has that more broader perspective, that more broader principle. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. You know that kind of feeling that the verse speaks of. You get to the end of the week, your pay packet comes in, and then it just slips through your fingers as it goes to rent and electricity and car repairs. Or when you spend hours and hours washing the dishes, washing the clothes, washing the floors, and they're all dirty a couple hours later. Or when you burn the candle at both ends trying to get ahead in life, but you only find that you're falling behind. Or like when we were running late for church this morning and we were taking off at the lights to try and get ahead, but we were stuck with the same pot of cars when we came to the next set of lights. We're fretful, anxious, weary and irritable as we rush around trying to see everyone and please everyone and fit in classes and read those books and create that habit and watch those shows and start that project and write that message and watch that thing and on and on We try to go harder, better, faster, stronger, more than ever. Hour after hour, work is never over. But then we get that smooth balm at the end of that verse. Uh, Some good news. In the midst of the vanity, in the midst of the futility, God gives rest to his beloved. Although it's useless to create busy, anxious lives apart from God, those who belong to the Lord, those who are working under his guidance, his beloved, he gives them sleep. He gives them rest. There is a reprieve from the empty toil. Those who toil in the Lord find rest. He gives them the restoration they need. God made us as limited creatures with limited ability. We need sleep. We, need, we can't just keep going and going. And so we have to stop and just say, Lord, I, I can't do it. I have to take my hands off the wheel and let you look after it. Because so I've got to go get some rest. And he will take care of us while we sleep. The world will keep on spinning if we take our hands off and let God look after it. But more than just that literal sleep that we need, God gives his people rest from the endless toil of this world, the endless striving, rest from the futility of life apart from the Lord. So then the question is, where are you finding your rest this week? Where are you finding yourself? Honestly, think about it. Where are you this week? Are you striving in vain to build up your ideal life, to protect your assets all the while wearing yourself out. The world is trying to call you to do that. The misplaced desires of your heart are probably calling you to do that. To want what your unbelieving neighbours have. To have the security that other people seem to possess. I've done it. 
I know what it's like to go a week without considering what God would have me live like. To go a week or even two without worshipping him or, or coming to him in prayer, relying on my own strength and power to achieve my goals. So I wonder what vanity are you pouring your life into? Are you out there building cardboard box forts while God wants you to work alongside him, building and defending a kingdom that will last into eternity? Let me get real pointy. Are you building a comfortable life for yourself while your neighbors run headlong toward destruction? When you hold on to the hope of life and blessedness and goodness in Jesus Christ, but you want to hold it over here and not take it out there? Are you whiling away the hours working on trivial projects while your mates perish? Are you pouring your soul into protecting something that will burn up on the last day? What are you going to say to the Lord when you meet him? Look, I know you called me to follow Jesus, to lay down my life and to, and to be willing to endure suffering for the sake of your holy name, but I just had so much on. You know, so many things to get to. I was too tired to take discipleship seriously. It shouldn't need to be said, but I'll say it anyway. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with having a nice house or having some savings in the bank account or having a good job or having hobbies. But more often than not, these things become idols for us and we need to tear down those idols. Often our heart is longing for these earthly things rather than longing for God's kingdom. We seek first the kingdom of God and these other things come along with it. So give up wasting your life and energy in building and protecting what will fade away. Join God's building program. Join God's defense force. Protect what really matters. Build God's house. Be a tool that he uses in the lives of others to bring them closer to Jesus Christ, to establish them and build them up into spiritual maturity. Use the gifts that God has given you to build in his house. Take up your watch post on his walls. Take your rest in him, the Lord, knowing that he has it all under control. Even when your strength is spent, you can sleep soundly knowing that the Lord is at work even when you're not, protecting his people when you're asleep. Come and receive Jesus Christ. He says, it's a waste of time building your house on the sand Build your house on the rock. And we can build our house on the rock who is Jesus Christ, who is immovable foundation for our life because he has secured for us an eternal salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden light. Jesus lived and died in your place to free you from the burdens of this life, to give you a new life, an eternal life, to protect his people, to build them up. He made the way into his kingdom easy. Come, pent and believe, receive the kingdom. And what will you 
what will you give to the Lord? What will you render to the Lord because of all the gifts that He has given to you? What will you give to Him in return to, for this unfathomable, unfathomable free gift? A life of vanity or a life of thankful faithfulness? Don't waste your life, as John Piper would say. In the next section, we see God's building and protection. God's building and protection in verses 3 to 5. And this second part of our psalm expands somewhat in the themes of the first part. At first you might think, well, we're talking about building uh, and watchmen, and then we're talking about children. How do these things go together? I will tell you in a minute. But I just wanted to say, before we go any further, I need to take a moment to say something important, and that is that it might be hard for many of you to, to talk and to think about this topic of children. It is part of God's word. We do need to hear what he has to say to us. But don't hear it as an attack on those who aren't in an ideal situation. Don't hear it as an attack on those who can't have children or those who can't have any more. Or we understand that we live in a fallen and broken world and sometimes there are broken families. There are single parents. There's families where only one parent is a believer. There's childless couples or singles or widows who desire families Well, there are people who have lost children, and these things are hard. We're not glossing over that. They're heavy, and we acknowledge those hurts and those trials. These griefs and these trials, they show that things are not as they should be, and we can weep together over this grief. And you who are in the midst of experiencing these hardships outside of your control should not feel like a second-class Christian because you don't have the ideal, or somehow you are divided from the body of the church because you don't look like those people over there, because God's taken you on a different route in life. But these still are things for us to hear, even if we are not doing the things that this passage talks about. We need to hear them because it's for the body of Christ, it's for our building up. It's for you as a brother or sister in Christ to help encourage your other brothers and sisters in Christ, who may be children, or may be our parents. So this psalm goes on to open up something of what was said in verses 1 and 2. This is how it's connected. You see, the, the Hebrew and the Greek word for house, like the word house in English, can mean more than just a building. It can mean a household. It can be the people. It can be the family that live there. So there's a double meaning in saying, unless the Lord builds the house, it's all for, for nothing. Unless the Lord builds the home, the family, it can all be for nothing. So the Lord works with us not only in the labours of life, serving him generally, he works with us in the labours of building up homes and families. And this is a way that God builds up his house, his church, through families. Let's see what the text says in verses 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. 
He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is, this is a joy, this is a blessing to be able to talk about this gift that comes from the Lord. God that says that children are a reward, they're an inheritance, they're a gift from his hand, they come from him. Now, it's not a reward in the sense that, well, I did so many years labor for the Lord and I gave up so many things in this world, so therefore now I'm owed the child. But it's just a general principle that God gives children as a benefit to his people, to all humanity in general, but especially to God's people, his spiritual family. And the fact that this verse starts with, behold, is like saying, look, this is important for us to know and remember. Children are not a trial from God to test your patience, though God may use them that way. They're not a burden. They're not here to kill your joy. I'll put it off for as long as I can so I can enjoy my youth. They are gifts from God. It's a privilege to receive children from God's hand. And we've all been children at one stage or another. We're all blessings that have come into the world. Part of the anti-God rhetoric, the way that people speak in the world at the moment, and apart from that atrocious idea that it's okay to kill unborn people, there's still talk about the fact that children are hassle, that they're joy killers, that they're parasites. And you should put off having them as long as possible. And just fit in a few at the, at the end if you can. And then they say when you do have children, one of those ideas out there is, well, oh, you just have to feed them and clothe them, give them somewhere to sleep, and then you send them off to school. School will train them, and then um, when they're 18, I can kick them out of the house and my job's done. You see, God's enemies want to destroy healthy families, to undercut how we think about children and and marriage, to deceive us. So don't believe anything that the world has to say about families unless it relates to what God says about families. But there's a flip side to that, that kind of negative view of children, and that is idolizing them. It needs to be said that children are not gods. Even though they're a gift from God and they are good and we should value them and care for them, we should not turn them into gods where we bow down at their every whim and bend over backwards to sacrifice everything for their sake. And we end up obeying children rather than God. But this psalm reminds us that children are not gods. They are gifts from God's hand. Worship the giver, not the gift. And so a follow-up question then is where are you leaning in your heart? I know we, we waver, but where do you have a tendency? Do you tend to lean towards their burden or towards worshipping them? We can't fall into either trap. The, verse, the next verse gives us a picture of how we are to think of our children in verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And you may have heard this verse a bunch of times, especially with the next part, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. But you might have heard it so many times that it's kind of lost its meaning. So let's stop and think about this for a second. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. 
Or let me put it another way. Like 50 cal bullets in the hand of a sniper are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his magazine with them. Children are not cute set pieces, window dressing to our picture-perfect life. They're not just here to look after us in old age. Children are weapons that we let loose at the enemy. They are ranged weapons that we fire down through the course of history to overthrow God's enemies in generations to come. And in order to be to, for them to be effective, they must be pointed in the right direction. The Proverbs remind us, train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. But also, these child arrows need to be shaped and prepared to fly true. Arrows don't just fly true automatically. They need to be weighted properly. They need to have the sharp tip. They need to have good fletching. Many parents think that if they just get the fletching and the tip and the shaft and they just leave it in a pile for 18 years, that an arrow will magically pop out at the end. The Proverbs say, folly, foolishness, is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. But also, the child arrow needs to be let loose on the enemy. You can't hide your children away in a Christian bubble and hope that nothing bad will ever befall them. For sure, you don't go and throw them in the deep end without preparing them. But you need to do that. You need to prepare them for what is to come, for what they will face out in the world. And to actively encourage them to enter into God's service, to become a builder in God's house, to become a watchman on God's defences to follow in our footsteps. We can't just sit back and hope that our kids turn out okay. And dads especially. I want to speak to you. Sure, yes, mums, but we know that dads easily slack off in this area. And we know that when dads slack off, the next generation is useless. We can't let these things slide. It will be our downfall. Do you remember Eli and his sons in the book of Samuel? Do you remember Samuel and his sons in the book of Samuel? They were not trained up in the way that they should go. We can remember countless examples of Israel and their history when one generation would turn to the Lord and seek after him. But a generation or two later, they'd forgotten all about it. So get serious about training up your kids to go in the way that they should go. Prepare them as arrows. I should be able to go around and ask every father in this room one simple question and I should be able to get an immediate response. I should be able to ask, what training strategies are you using with your children? You should be able to tell me right off the bat about how you do discipleship in your home, about how you lovingly correct your children, how you are living as an example for your children so that they can follow after you. And my guess is if you can't articulate that to me clearly, then it's probably not happening in the home. So what kind of arrows are you making? Where are you firing them? 
Satan's not interested in letting your kids make their own choices about faith when they grow up. So why are you? Your kids are being assaulted by the world and by God's enemies out there in schools and in TV and online. What are you doing to prepare them to dance with the devil? We must take our responsibility to nurture and guide our children seriously. We're leading and shaping these souls. We have a couple more things to note before we finish. First is that more children equals more blessing. Who doesn't want more blessing? Blessed is the man who has a full quiver. What warrior goes into battle with one bullet? If that's all God gives you, that's okay. That's God's providence for you. Use that bullet well. Aim true and fire it. But if God has given you the option, if God's given you a whole magazine, why would you only put one bullet in it? If God hasn't given you the option, that's okay. We're not holding that against you. But if you've got the option of taking a whole quiverful into battle, why would you take less? Why reject God's creation mandate as if you know better? God says, be fruitful and multiply. Make images of God, disciples of Jesus, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded us. Oh, no, I'll be right, thanks. I don't think I'll make a good parent. No, thanks, God. You keep the blessings. I don't want any. And there might be some objections rolling around in your mind. You might be thinking the world is a terrible place. There's lots of suffering. Why would I want to bring a child into it? Well, because God says they're a blessing. And because if we are faithful and we, we do what we're supposed to do with our children, we're actually going to be making the world a better place. So why not take that option? Reduce the, the suffering in the world by bringing in more disciples. Or you might say, oh, they're expensive. In the history of time, it has never been cheaper or easier to bring children into the world safely. You may have to give up the big home loan or other sideline pursuits to create space to have more kids, but it's kingdom building work. It's not just about having a big family. It's about, it's about growing God's kingdom. Nobody said that serving Jesus wouldn't cost you anything. I suppose the real question then is, are we looking for excuses not to follow after God's design for his people? Are we trying to do the least work possible? And if our hearts are deceitful, why should we trust our hearts when it comes to this? And we look around the world and we see that the church is shrinking in many places. Why? One of the reasons is because we've believed the lies of the world. We've stopped having kids and we've stopped teaching them how to follow Jesus. We joked and jeered about big families. Oh, don't you guys have a TV? Do you know how babies are made? Or we say, oh, I don't want to force faith and religion on my kids. I long for the day when I don't need to fear talking about this because it is so normal and natural for us to long for this, to desire it, for it to be commonplace, perspective in our, 
in our churches where people are celebrating quivers full of children. Because this is one of the ways that God builds his house through raising up God-fearing children. It's one of the ways that God defends his people by raising up the next vanguard of truth who will face the giants to come. And we get an example of this in this psalm when a godly man faces against his enemies at the city gate. In that ancient time, the city gate was like a, the town square. It's the, the meeting place where you'd come together and do business or sort out court cases. Um, you know, imagine the scene of a man who's had a bunch of kids early in life is now at loggerheads with some guys who are trying to stuff him over. They're making wild accusations about his character. And if he's just there by himself, he's easily overcome. But blessed is the quiverful man. He has a cohort of sons to stand with him, to promote truth and justice, to defend their godly family. And the same goes for the modern family. Blessed are those who have a household full of God-fearers, who have seen the gospel lived out before their eyes, who have been trained in righteousness, who seek after the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind and strength, and who love their neighbor as their self. Blessed are those who have a quiver full of arrows to launch into the next generation as wild-eyed zealots for God's cause, laying aside any hindrance of this earthly life and pursuing holiness with relish. They will stand against the devil. They will wage war against the flesh. They will fight the principalities and powers with the sword of the Spirit. The word of God which they've known from their youth because they learnt it on their father's knees. While he sang to them about the love of Christ. In our families, we are not at work for the sake of vanity, but we're hard at work with the Lord to build houses of faith where righteousness dwells. We're raising up dragon slayers. And as Doug Wilson says, if we're raising up dragon slayers, we should not be surprised that there are dragons out there to slay. What do we do now? We turn from our vain pursuits to serve God in Jesus Christ, working along Him, alongside Him building and protecting His people as people who are saved by His grace, saved by His mercy, working with Him as faithful servants, doing things His way, And one of those ways is by having children, receiving that gift from the Lord and firing those weapons into enemy territory to drive back the darkness with the light of the gospel. You may never get to go and do something flashy, like be going on a missionary journey to unreached people groups. You may never stand before thousands of people and proclaim the gospel. But if you have kids and you're working with the Lord to build up God's house, you're making disciples, and your countless hours of work and labor are not in vain. Friends, it's only in Jesus Christ where all of our life has meaning and purpose. It's only when we are free 
and living in the freedom of being purchased by his blood, having thrown off the burdens of sin that we carry. It's only there that our lives have meaning. So I encourage you to rest in him, to work alongside him. And if you don't know him, please come and receive this joyful work. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you from this song that teaches us about what matters in life and how to serve you. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to identify the vain things that we are running after and to just get rid of them, to turn ourselves and put ourselves in serving you and building your way for your purposes, for your kingdom, and not for our own. Lord, help us to protect that which really matters, not standing watch over something which you have not guaranteed to protect. Lord, please enable us who will have children or have had children to take this task seriously, to receive that blessing with thankfulness and joyfulness, and, Lord, to, to, to feel some of that, that weight of, 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 that, of what you put before us, but to, but to turn our hearts to that task of raising children joyfully as we work alongside you to build your house. Lord, I, I pray and I ask that you would help those who are living in vanity, those who are endlessly and futilely trying to find meaning and purpose in this life apart from you. I pray, Lord, that you might draw them to yourself so they might know Jesus Christ. They might join him in resurrection. They might have life eternal with him. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.